0: From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCauer, this week in Portland, Oregon. On this week's edition, what Paul Pullman is up to, how developing countries are insuring against climate disasters, how an Impact Investment Fund co founder sees the future of capitalism, and why building owners should take charge of EV adoption. We're all charged up this week on 350. It's September 13th, Friday the 13th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. I hope you're feeling lucky. Joining me from, (laughs) she does this week, from her home and garden in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hi, Heather.
1: Hi. Yes. Ah, yes. My garden, my garden (laughs) is beginning to fade. The perennials are fading. The goldfinches are eating all the echinacea, but I love it. I love it. Fall is in the air and, and I'm a fall back. girl.
0: It'll be back next year.
1: Yeah. It'll it'll come back. Yeah. I will miss it, but it'll come back. So where are you this week, Joel?
0: I am in Portland, Oregon. This is um the beginning of the first of three uh, Greenbiz Executive Network meetings that we have uh, this month. We have as you know, three in January, three in May and three more in September. And this week's meeting is being hosted by the Tillamook County Creamery Association. If you uh, live in certain parts of the country, you will know Tillamook for their ice cream, butter, sour cream, yogurt, and of course, cheese, cheddar in particular, uh, but many kinds. Uh, Tillamook's pretty old. It was founded back in the mid-19th century in, in Oregon, which is uh, not too far, but an answer for a lot of the of the West. And um, it's a really interesting com- company. A little bit later, I'll be talking to Sarah bobien who heads s- sustainability here at Tillamook County Creamery. So yeah, really interesting. Uh, always so much fun to go into another company and see... What's going on, how they're thinking about sustainability, what they're working on, what they're struggling with. And you're always amazed when something, you know, as simple as cheese, you know, when we go back to the farm and all that goes on in farming and runoff and all the different inputs and outputs and waste products and it's – incredibly, incredibly complex. So it's always, you know, as much as we write about this and talk about all the things that companies are doing and should be doing, uh, it's always such a grounding reality check to go in and, and hear how insanely complex, insanely nuanced it is to make change, not just within an organization, but you think about farmers, who, by the way, second, third, fourth, fifth generation, they say, what can you teach us about sustainability? We are the definition of that. We've been doing this for generations. Um, And yet, there's there's a lot more they can do and a lot more that they're already doing that they can talk about more. So we'll talk about that a little bit more with Sarah in a few minutes.
1: Okay. You billboarded a very intriguing name a moment ago, Paul Pullman.
0: You talked to Paul Pullman? Why? When? Well, I actually ended up having dinner with Paul Pullman in San Francisco uh, over the weekend. Uh, Paul was in town for a board meeting of something that he's a part of. And as we've talked about a little bit before, and we'll talk uh, later in the program with Paul about this, uh, he has a new... uh, organization for, it's a benefit corporation called Imagine, or I think it might be called Imagine Partners, uh, along with uh, Jeff Sebright, who uh, was part of his team, ran sustainability at Unilever, where Paul Pullman was chairman and CEO, and Valerie Keller, who was also part of the uh, leadership team at Unilever. And the three of them who were at dinner in San Francisco, uh, we were you know talking about what they're up to. We were talking about some of the ways that GreenBiz and uh, our various media and event properties can be supporting the work that they're doing, which is you know taking a lot of it's based on the great work that Paul spearheaded at Unilever, the sustainable develop uh, sustainable living plan that, and and basically to the point where. There's a whole bunch of sustainable living products that are actually more profitable than the conventional ones and the way that he really uh, spearheaded and has been seen as as a leader, probably one of the few and there are just a few rock star CEOs in sustainability, at least of large publicly owned consumer brands. Uh, and of course, now he's no longer there, but he is by no means stopping the work. He's the chair, I believe, it's uh, is his title of the UN Global Compact. He's a former chair, but still very connected to the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. Pretty much everything going on in Climate Week in New York of any global importance seems to have him either speaking or uh, one of the organizers. So he's a very busy man, and it was a joy to spend an evening with him. At the end of that evening, I pulled them aside and uh, had a conversation for this week's podcast. And that, too, will be coming right up.
1: That is awesome. Can't wait to listen. I'm jealous.
0: (laughs) But um, let's move on to talk about the Week in Review.
1: I chose three stories this week. The first of which is how developing countries are ensuring against climate disasters, clearly a very important topic in the aftermath of Dorian and the devastation that it's inflicted on the Bahamas and elsewhere, by a couple of individuals at the World Resources Institute, co-authored by Leonardo Martinez-Diaz, who is the global director of the Sustainable Finance Center there, as well as... Jack McClamrock, and he is a research analyst in that center as well. What I found intriguing about this, this story is it's a, it's a really good analysis of, of parametric insurance, which you've talked about before, and I, I have to be honest, I am not as financially as astute as you are, Joel, with some of these issues. But um, I was basically reading about the piece, and it, it helped me understand a lot about how the sovereign funds are are beginning to be invested in by regions, not just a country. So we've seen some out of the Caribbean. Um, there's a Caribbean catastrophe risk insurance facility now, and an African risk capacity. So these are these are pools of funds that, that some of these developing countries have established in order to handle issues that are obviously systemic. So in the Caribbean, it would be insurance to handle hurricanes and earthquakes. In Africa, of course, they're looking for more drought coverage. And the interesting thing about parametric insurance, of course, is that it relies on risk modeling rather than actually what's assessed on the ground. So it, it takes a look at the risks in a region and the the policies pay out a lot more quickly when, when you you've hit certain pre pre agreed upon conditions like rainfall or or wind speed, or if a, a certain economic losses uh, estimate kicks in and, and hits a certain level, but it you know it was intriguing for a couple of reasons. Number one is because this w- should help countries get get back on their feet more quickly, as well as they by hedging you know by by pooling their resources, they're they're getting lower costs. So this was just a. Intriguing piece, um, you know, from a from a national government standpoint. It just was a it's something that developed countries aren't necessarily looking at as closely, but the developing nations are are really going to benefit.
0: And one reason for that, Heather, is that the developing nations are often the ones more at risk for climate disasters like hurricanes, as it hits poorer parts. Of uh, of the world or poor communities in the developed worlds. We saw that in the in the lower Ninth Ward in New Orleans during Katrina. We saw that in in parts of uh, Hurricane Sandy and and Harvey and others. Um, and certainly in Puerto Rico too. Uh, so this is a big challenge, and it's it makes sense that the sovereign wealth funds, which are basically state investment funds, often coming from uh, oil or other kinds of 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 wealth uh, within the country. Are leaning into this that this is such a, a critical thing, and, and here too in the United States, I mean, the payouts from even the the Maria and Harvey hurricanes of a, a while back uh, have not been paid out to the intended recipients very quickly, and there's still a lot, still a lot of people suffering from from those in here in this purportedly rich nation. So. Being able to to get people back on their feet, start to rebuild the infrastructure and hopefully do that in a climate secure way to not necessarily building uh, demolished coastal properties right on those same locations, but putting them on higher ground. This is something that we are going to have to start doing more and more with nations of all levels of wealth.
1: So you want to hear about the second story I picked? (laughs) <laughs> I, I do. Okay. If yeah. you, you don't
0: need to ask; just jump into it.
1: <laughs> okay. So it's it's the latest in our sustainable MBA column series by by inter, which are you know are interviews by Bard MBA students. The latest up is Matthew Weatherly White, the co-founder and managing director of Caprock, which is a uh, impact-oriented investment fund, and they. Have um, actually, I was quite surprised to find out that five years ago, they p- surpassed one billion in impact-oriented assets. So that was like five years ago, right? We're all over green finance now. Of course, you have been for a lot longer than that, but but the rest of the world is catching on, and these these folks are are pretty well established. Uh, it's a it's an interview that that you know talks a little bit about why the company debated being a B Corp, which I found interesting they were worried about the impression in, among certain circles um so they had to think long and hard about that because of the the way that that uh you know people some people look at the term sustainability or environmental stewardship so they they thought long and hard about how they communicated what they were doing they subject all of their investments to the same you know general financial scrutiny that all of their other investments go through um you know that that of course was Quite illuminating for me. just you know it's just another investment. they um, they kind of they look at the viability of the the impact component first, and then just hand it over to the to the, the regular money crunchers. Um, I, w- I have to say one of the, the quotes I really loved is is uh, the Bard MBA student. Her name is Emma Jenkins. She asked Matthew Weatherly White about how he views the future of capitalism, and I loved the metaphor he put out. He he talks about capitalism as an operating system. Like this was not the idea of capitalism wasn't handed to us in carved in stone tablets, as he says. It's like a smartphone. You might not understand how a smartphone actually works. but We all understand the need for periodic updates. It's an operating system challenge. And that was, to me, such a refreshing way of looking at our capitalistic system and thinking, you know, you know what? We gotta, we've got to embed some of these things into the way we frame things, period, end of story. It's not a separate issue. So I love that, that framing and that metaphor.
0: Yeah and one of the things that's shifting in here is we is the field of impact investing itself which is a fairly new term I mean it's been around for a long time but it's fairly new in terms of its common usage and you know it, it often says well haven't we been doing that for a while it's called SRI or socially responsible investing and it's actually a different thing uh, impact investing is about aligning uh, it's around some kind of theme or impact uh, uh, that you're looking for, positive outcomes or, or, or the utmost importance, and so it has to have a positive impact in some way. Uh, the objective is really to help uh, whoever the invested business is accomplish specific goals that are beneficial to society, the environment. SRI, so- socially responsible investing, is really about screens, uh, negative screens. It's what do you want to avoid? So you want to avoid, let's say, alcohol, tobacco, or other addictive substances, or gambling stocks, or weapons, or you know, ammunition, or terrorism, or uh, things that produce environmental damage or climate. You know, th- those are the negative screens. And I think this impact investing is the amount of money that's being directed into uh, impact investing funds. I don't have the numbers handy here, but it's astounding. And it's uh, coming out of big mainstream funds. Uh, In fact, I mentioned Paul Pullman was in town for a meeting. He was actually on the board of something called the Rise Fund, I believe it is. That's out of TPG, uh, based here in San Francisco. It's got some billions of dollars, I think, now uh, that's looking at impact investing, and it's got an all-star cast that includes Bono Bono. and a bunch of others Mm -hmm. (laughs) that are part of this thing, and, of course, Paul Pullman. So this is an area of growing importance.
1: So the final story I picked is from our friends at the Rocky Mountain Institute, Angelique Fathi and Kara Carmichael. And it's why building owners should take charge of EV adoption. It, this is a great analysis for anyone that's worrying about the energy profile of their building because it really goes deep into the, the potential impact that putting electric vehicle charging infrastructure could have on building owners. It talks about the the demand, the increased demand. It's, it could increase costs 45 to 89% if charging is not managed properly. Um, and now, of course, the reason that this is so important is that um, you know, a lot of states are starting to put in place uh, regulation, or at least a lot of local municipalities are putting into place regulations to require there to be um, certain EV charging infrastructure in their parking lots. So if you have a certain number of parking spots, you have to set aside a number for EVs. Um, and also, you know, companies as they build out their campuses are, are increasingly building in uh, EV charging infrastructure. Even if they're not flipped switched on right now, they're EV capable. So that you know, when there's a, the mass of of uh, EVs are on the campus, they can be plugged in and, and charged. The the issue is, of course, that it, lots of these charges come at times when buildings are already taxed. So it could really affect the peak demand. As an example, if everyone comes into work in the morning and parks in their EVs, and then the building is, you know, the cooling systems of the building are heating heating up or cooling up, if you will, and the lights are all being turned on, it could really have an impact on the demand charges that a utility might request and require of their customers. So the suggestion that they have, they have several strategies that they're suggesting. One is to sub-meter, so at the very least, don't tie these things into your you know, traditional systems. Get them separated so you can actually ask and, and look at that information and analyze it and, and share it potentially with the, the people that are charging. So maybe you have to charge for costs or maybe if it's a public spot, you know, like at a mall, maybe you're going to charge for the services. Also, um there are some utilities that are putting into place managed charging programs. So the utility or some other service provider can manage it for you. So, for example, they might look remotely and time the the charging to be overnight, maybe a couple, just shift it a couple hours so that it's not really in, in the peak demand of the building in general. Um, and then finally, you know, make sure that, you know, even though you don't want to tie the electricity source into your main sources that you should tie the management in so you should understand holistically how the charging stations are are really um, you know, affecting the peak load of a building. So it's a really, I have to say, it was just a really thoughtful and thorough analysis of an issue that is becoming bigger. Um, and hopefully we'll become even bigger because we want people to use EVs. Uh, but we don't want that it's a tax. Yeah. That you know, we don't want we don't want a tax to be on the people that are trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And
0: and just one, one quick comment on this. First of all, you talked about that EVs could increase costs 45 to 89% just to be really super duper clear that's energy costs it's not the whole building costs so that's the part we're in and it's implicit but I just want to make sure people understood that but yeah right. the, I think yes. the the interesting piece here is, is with any new technology at what point do we stop subsidizing it at what point do we stop giving special parking to EV uh, drivers because so many people have them at what point do we, as you said you start you know charging a fee for them these are going to be interesting uh, conversations that um, you know partly a victim of success I uh, really not victim because there's nothing wrong here but there will be some shifting strategies and particularly building owners looking at that uh, because these demand charges are the charge that companies pay for the peak demand that they are that they use over the course of a month basically for utility says okay we have to have this part on reserve to meet your peak demand and so we're gonna charge you for that extra peak so the lower the peak the less that demand charge that a company has to pay and and so this this uh, What starts off as a do-good kind of thing, let's give free charging to our EV drivers to encourage that, Uh, all of a sudden can become a significant cost. So yeah, this is a topic that we're going to be seeing a lot more of, and it's, it's going to evolve right along with the technology. So as I mentioned earlier in the show, I had dinner with Paul Pullman and a few others uh, over the past weekend. At the end of dinner, I pulled Paul aside. We went upstairs in a sort of private area in the restaurant, a little bit of background noise, but I'm sure you'll get through that, and had a conversation talking about what Paul Pullman is up to. So, Paul, to start, what do you think of the uh, Business Roundtable Declaration? Has that changed anything for you, or do you think it can change anything, period? Period.
2: Well, uh, Joel, you need to see the uh, BRT statement in the context of the broader environment that we're now in, uh, and especially in the US in this case, a difficult environment. So here is a group of CEOs, a significant number of CEOs, only a few decided not to sign it, um, that actually uh, want to have the debate. So in that context it's good. If you talk about what the specific substance is or how far we really go into this multi-stakeholder model, a lot of questions to be asked still. Uh, the main issue that we currently face, are, for example, climate change or the specific underlying commitments that the companies would make once you sign such a statement, it's obviously light from that perspective, but I've seen in Europe, I've seen in the press that uh, we started the debate that uh, we need to move out of the uh, shareholder primacy towards the multi-stakeholder model. You've seen some reactions of the financial industry. Uh, Frankly, uh, that drives home why we need to do it. I think the people that are objecting to this benign statement actually help hopefully move it forward faster and in that sense I hope a lot of positive things are coming out of it.
0: You were saying earlier to me that that you see that CEOs in some ways are more courageous when it comes to climate action than the
2: CSOs. Really? Well, what you now see in this country as well, if you look, for example, at the uh, Edelman survey that came out, um, now you get about 70% of the employees and the public at large that does does expect CEOs to speak up. Uh, You actually see walkouts now in companies because a company decides to deal with border control uh, issues with the U.S. government or take on contracts or uh, is not aggressive enough on climate change. So increasingly, you see in this country, even more so than in many other countries around the world, your employees stay, uh, you know, demanding uh, companies to be more courageous. And CEOs are getting that message. They actually see uh, Nike being the ultimate example that if you take a stand on something, uh, in this case... um, uh, um, race, racial issues, but if you take a stand on something, you actually get rewarded. I think Nike in the two or three weeks' time, they saw their market cap go up by about $9 billion for this. So, yes, um, within the environment that we are now in, we see the CEOs, increasingly a group of CEOs, uh, putting more bold and courageous statements out there than you would get in the time frame needed through the corporate apparatus.
0: So you're demonstrating this now in the fashion industry. You've started a new initiative uh, with CEOs from from, uh, fashion
2: companies Uh, to do what exactly? Well, what you see here is what might, a lot of people might not be aware of is the world is moving in the right direction. I don't think you have to convince too many CEOs anymore that we have an issue of climate change or air pollution or deforestation or food waste and food security. The, uh, the trend of what we need to do is also uh, fairly clear. But at the end of the day, we're not moving fast enough and we're not moving at the scale that we need. Uh, climate change is still going up, deforestation going up, and we're actually at an important part in the world's history that poverty might go up as well. And, and many of these things are close to uh, negative feedback loops, which would be very difficult to recuperate from. So CEOs broadly understand that, but our collective action doesn't get us there. So what we are trying to do is bring a courageous collective of CEOs together, usually about 25 to 30% of a total value chain, and um, work with them collectively and individually Uh, to try to get uh, the industry to move faster towards certain tipping points. What we find is when you bring 30% of the industry together, all of a sudden the NGOs or civil society want to partner with you versus more adversary relationships. We see governments uh, willing to um, look at frameworks that uh, are conducive to what we try to achieve and it becomes a positive momentum environment and that's what we're obviously trying to create with Imagine. The fashion industry is uh, one of the most polluting industries if you look at it from a biodiversity, ocean, climate change point of view and I'm not even talking human rights standards and uh, the carbon emission exceeds the uh, shipping and airline industry for example Uh, the trend is not our friend with fast fashion so we're trying to bend that curve before the consumer forces that to do it and it would not be to the benefit of the industry so you might as well be proactive and we've seen great traction we did in the G7 in France we came up with a fashion pact. 32 CEOs Uh, great companies like Nike and Falls, PV8, Gap and many other American companies uh, next to a lot of global companies so that's the beginning I think of a uh, tipping point in an industry that frankly never sat together at this scale.
0: So the theory of change is that if you can get 20 to 30 percent of any sector, you can move them uh, and then ultimately the entire sector to change. So what's going to change as a result of the CEOs in fashion that you have brought together?
2: Well, for example, the commitment. This is a first step over a five-year plan. You cannot boil the ocean at once. but. Um, Uh, For example, in this case, uh, fashion specifically, these CEOs uh, agreed to put their companies on a one and a half degrees, uh, uh, warming target, which means net zero by 2050, and there are specific plans behind that. They also agreed to attack the issue of cotton, which is very destructive for biodiversity, and, and agreed to a regenerative agriculture. And finally, on the issue of plastics, which is 45% of the plastics you find in the ocean, actually come from garments and the, the polymers, is uh, to look at uh, the uh, getting out of the single-use plastics as a first step. We think that's already a bigger commitment than the industry has been able to make until now, despite its history of hundreds of years. But we also think that this is the first step that brings them together, creates the trust, the the ways of working to go to uh, significantly bigger commitments that ultimately address the question of consumption, where you have fast fashion, uh, 52 uh, seasons a year or more, uh, driving a consumption pattern that frankly is unsustainable long term.
0: So what's next? What do you take on after fashion?
2: We think that uh, Fashion for Good is a big industry, we want, to deli- we want to focus on the sustainable development goals and only focus as a priority on climate change and uh, income inequality. Those are two sides of the same coin and probably the most burning issues. And next to Fashion for Good, we're starting to look at uh, tourism and travel for good, we're looking at food for good, we're looking at uh, financing for good, and then uh, obviously uh, uh, tech for good, which is very relevant in this part of the world and there's a lot of appetite for that as well.
0: Well, a lot of good that needs to be done. Um, it sounds very exciting and a, a great place for your, uh, to be putting your energies and talents and connections and, and stature for uh, going forward. This is uh, sort of the place you needed to be, I guess.
2: Well, I think it's for all of us. The um, It's very clear that some people feel uh, that uh, the definition of sustainability is uh, looking after their own personal interest. Uh, What we're trying to say is uh Sustainability is simply putting the interest of your children and their children ahead of your own personal greed. And if we can get enough of the CEOs to think about the common good and invest in that, knowing that by doing so they're better off themselves as well, I think we can actually move the world. This is a very difficult period from a political point of view, that frankly more headwinds than tailwinds. We've benefited until now for centuries from a democratically and functioning government to help us solve many of these issues including in this country. Uh, This time, I think it's up to the private sector to help de-risk the political sector. And if we would not take that responsibility, frankly, we're failing humanity, and I don't want to be part of that.
0: Paul Pullman, former chairman, CEO of Unilever Now, the founder of Imagine. Paul,
2: thanks so much. Thank you, Joel. I appreciate it.
3: Hi, this is Shannon Howd, GreenBiz's Purpose and People Columnist and founder of Walk of Life Coaching. At Walk of Life, we coach change leaders to shift careers, get promoted, and deliver impact. This week, I chatted with Interface's Chief Sustainability Officer, Erin Meeson, who shared learnings about what life as a CSO really looks like. She also shared a few tips for anyone aspiring to be a CSO someday. She said that the key is to get experience working within a business, in the field, in the industry you want to target. Understanding how to build the business case and gain support from your colleagues is a skill set that must be learned. If you want to be a CSO and pursue sustainability in business, then you have to understand their business. I also asked her to share a day in the life of a CSO, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Here is what Aaron had to say.
4: Here's like kind of what the day was like this morning. Um, I had a 7 a.m. global team call that was a cross-functional group of marketing, innovation, product, and sustainability focused on how we explain the mission of reversing global warming to our customers in a way that's not too difficult. So these like 7 a.m. calls and the 7 p.m. calls are both a function of working in a global company, but also I think when it's working right, they show the extent to which sustainability can really be integrated in things like marketing and product design. So after this, I have a video shoot because we're celebrating the 25th anniversary of sustainability at Interface this year. So this August marks 25 years since Ray kicked off the focus in the business and we'll be doing a lot of internal celebrating. And so that to me highlights the extent to which like CSOs are big cheerleaders in the organization, both internally and externally. So we will be doing a lot of communications around what we've done and, and giving ourselves a little bit of a pat on the back about it but I think the one thing that's really cool is externally, we aren't issuing a sustainability report. Again, this is challenging ourselves to be visionary. We're sharing our lessons learned about how we got to where we got, and we're going to share how far we got. After that, I've got a webinar with ASU, Volans, and a couple of other organizations about how to create The map or the pathway to a new carbon economy for business. So, getting focused on what I said before, which is we've got to get our house in order at Interface, but we probably need to spend a lot more time helping other companies figure out what the pathway is to reversing global warming in their business. So, this will be a white paper that gets written by a bunch of organizations, including Volans and Carbon 180, and then gets shared with other businesses in an effort to build their awareness, but also encourage them to take more aggressive steps in their business. And then the last thing I have is an internal discussion about us applying the handprint methodology to our business. So here's the good about that. It's, I think, a nice, like, if you look at the calendar, it shows that we've integrated sustainability in business. It shows that we're doing an equal amount of internal communicating and external communicating. It tells me that I'm spending some time trying to encourage other businesses to do what we're doing, and I'm also really focused on what's the next gen stuff, like handprint. I think the challenge is like it's really hard to shift inside and outside of those roles on a daily basis. We get really awesome opportunities every day like this amazing woman approached me and she said, we'd love to have interface sponsor um, kind of what I would call a women's leadership summit that uses forest learning to help enrich people as personal leaders. Like a, Mm. I want to go to that B. I want to be a part of that, Mm. but it's, it's not, you know, it's not something that's in my current plan. I don't have budget for it. I don't really have the bandwidth to, like, step back from all that stuff that I just said and help help plan that. And so the, like, the really hard part of it is that I have to say to no to really cool ideas every day because we don't have the bandwidth to do it. Or I say yes, and then, like, I do it at 8 o'clock at night. <laughs>
0: As I said at the beginning of the show, I'm at the Tillamook County Creamery Association office in Portland, Oregon, this week at the GBEN conference. And with me now is Sarah Bobien, the Senior Director of Stewardship at Tillamook. Hey, Sarah.
5: Hi, Joel, how are you?
0: Doing great, it's such a pleasure to be here. And you gave a little presentation about sustainability uh, at Tillamook. And, and I'm just wondering when you look at all of the things that go into the making of dairy products um, and all of the different ingredients of getting them to market, the packaging and the waste and everything that goes into that, this isn't a cooperative, a farmer, I guess, owned cooperative. Where do they fit in in terms of sustainability? In other words, how has the conversation around sustainability changed with the farmers in the four years that you've been here?
5: Well, we like to say that stewardship has always been part of the Tillamook Way And our farmers have always been good stewards of the air, land, and water and of their communities. Um, What I think has changed since I've come to Tillamook is um, an awareness and a desire to tell the story. Um, Our farmers haven't traditionally given data and um, opened themselves up to tell the story publicly. And they are very willing to do that now. And we're starting to get that story out there.
0: And is the story to cheese and ice cream buyers or is it to the community? Who's the story for and what does it tend to be about?
5: When we had a conversation about who the audience was for our sustainability report, um, it was really hard to decide who specifically is the audience because we want to speak to the farmers, uh, we want to speak to the communities and and the neighbors we have in the places we call home, but we're also speaking to employees, we're speaking to buyers for our retail partners, and we're also speaking to our consumers. So the sustainability report needed to speak to all of those audiences and resonate with all of them.
0: But well, I imagine that some of this communication is outside of the sustainability report because not everybody <laughs> reads those as, you know, relatively few people outside of sustainability or the employees and some of the close in perhaps uh, stakeholders like, like some, some customers or retailers or whoever. But the general public may not know the, the Tillamook story in the way or the farmers' stories in the way that they want to tell them. What are you doing about that?
5: It's a really good question, and we had a lot of conversations around that. And um, we, t- we decided to do a couple of different things um, to break the report down into sound bites that are more digestible for uh, a consumer or anyone that might be in that audience. So we built a website that is a... Uh, a- version of the sustainability report that is on the web so it gives the reader an option to go dive deeper and deeper as they desire more information or more technical information and then there is an opportunity to talk to people through our social media so taking um taking stories and breaking those down one story at a time so that they Uh, get a little insight into who we are as a cooperative and what it's like to be a farmer, uh, what it's like to be in a community on the coast of Oregon. And then if they wanna go learn more, they can go to the website and go to the full report.
0: So if you were to whisper in the ear of a farmer just before she or he were to talk about the sustainability uh, story of, of their products, what would you most want them to be able to say or communicate? What's the story that most needs to be told?
5: I would ask them to uh, convey the, the generations of farming families that they're part of, how they're looking back um, at their grandparents and great grandparents who are farming and how they desire a true sustainability and they want to hand their farm down to their children. I would ask them to speak about their care for the cows. I wish that somebody was watching my diet and my feed as much as they're watching theirs. Mm -hmm. Um, And I would ask them to speak uh, from the heart about how they care for the air, land, and water, and how no one who's a farmer giving water to their cows or living on the land um, is going to take that for granted
0: the average age of a farmer in America is like fifty seven and a half years now. Um, that's uh, not, and not getting any younger. How are you bringing new uh, generations into farming?
5: Part of our community enrichment um, efforts uh, is a focus on agricultural advocacy, so we're advocating for farmers at the local level as as part of a working lands industry, but we're also advocating for them at the state level through policy making, and we're also advocating for them at the federal level through trade associations that represent farmers and dairy.
0: So are you seeing results? Are there younger farmers either uh, being handed this down from their families or coming into uh, the farming world from perhaps other occupations?
5: There are a lot of kids who do want to stay on the farm and stay with their families, what their families have done for generations. Uh, We do see some new farmers who are interested in in joining. and there also is consolidation of farms where um, one farm who has been successful might buy the farm from a, a neighbor uh, so that they, and they inherit their cows and become a bigger farm. I also think um, it's important through the, the development of an organization called the Oregon Agricultural Trust um, that we're keeping land in mind and that that land stays agricultural land. And I also think it's important, the work that we're doing through our farm services team, to provide training and workshops for our farmers so that they have the financial literacy, um, that they're thinking ahead about estate planning and how they're handling their assets so that it's viable for the next generation to take over the farm.
0: Truly an intergenerational challenge. Sarah Bobien is the Senior Director of Stewardship at the Tillamook County Creamery Association. Thanks so much, Sarah. Thank you, Joel. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. You can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories and events we mentioned this week's episode. And while you're checking out stuff, make sure you check out our newsletters. We publish a different one Monday through Friday. That's five weekly newsletters in all on energy, on verge, on transportation and mobility, on circular economy, and on the profession of sustainability. You can go to greenbiz.com newsletters to find out more about those. Our email, 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McHour. Thanks for listening.